We love to explain quantum physics and the mysteries of the universe, but the mysteries of finance, not so much. Intuit helps you demystify your finances through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Understanding standard deductions or interest rates can be very complicated and tricky with big potential consequences. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places. Hey, Daniel, how do you feel about sequels? Well, in general, they tend to be sort of bigger, more expensive, and rarely on schedule. I think bigger and more expensive is the whole point of sequels. (laughs) Well, can you imagine one that you liked? My favorite sequel is called The PhD Movie 2. Totally unbiased opinion. <laughs> totally unbiased. I wrote and produced it, but uh, I think uh, it, it was good. Yeah. It, well, when I when we made it, I took inspiration from like uh, you know the Empire Strikes Back and you know uh, the Matrix too. I think those are all movies that did pretty well in the sequels. Oh, I see. You meant movie sequels. Yes. What kind of sequels did you think I was talking about? Hey, it's the podcast, so I was thinking science experiment sequels, of course. Indiana Jones and the Thesis of Doom. (laughs) Rise of the Protons. Hi, I'm Jorge. I'm a cartoonist and the creator of PhD Comics. Hi, I'm Daniel. I'm a particle physicist, and I actually am a fan of movie sequels. Welcome to our podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, a production of iHeartRadio. I think this is our episode number 100 or so. Oh, I think we're like 120, so I don't even know if it counts as a sequel anymore. What would that be called? I think it's called episode 120. (laughs) There's got to be a Latin name for it or something like Desic. Sentequel? Well, I think we uh, probably are going to peak at around 200. So if people can just hang on and wait for that one, maybe it'll come out before Avengers 120. We are slowly building the dramatic tension. So uh, welcome to our podcast. It's about the universe and all the amazing and beautiful and mind-blowing things to see out there in the far reaches of the cosmos. 
It's about all the things that you want to understand, all the things that you want to see about the universe, all the things that you'd like us to explain to you. So that's our job here today is to take you on a tour of the cosmos, help you visualize and help you really understand the universe that we find ourselves in. Yeah, and sometimes we don't just talk about the things that are out there or that might be out there in the universe, but we also kind of like to talk about how we see these things out there and how we know that they're there and how can we know more about them. That's right. One important role of science is to develop new eyes into the universe, new ways to look out there and discover crazy, mind-blowing stuff that informs our understanding of how everything works. And so we talk sometimes about how particle accelerators give us a new vision of the very small, or if we look at astrophysical neutrinos, we can see the universe in a different way. And so every time we build a new telescope or a new device or a new something, it's like we're opening a new kind of eyeball. Yeah, because there is a lot out there for us to see and discover. And it's pretty amazing that we can see a lot of it from our little, you know, spherical rock here floating in the middle of space in a corner of the galaxy in the in the little corridor of the universe. An almost spherical rock. Remember our podcast? That's right. Almost spherical. Yeah, but it is incredible that we can learn anything, you know, that without going anywhere, we can learn so much about this vast cosmos just by sitting on our little home and that relies on us gathering all this information. And if you think about it from the other perspective, there's so much information about the universe just washing over us right now. You know, we know about light and we know about neutrinos and all sorts of other particles. Um, but we think that there are other kinds of matter washing over us that are still invisible. And there might be yet new forms of matter we haven't yet even imagined that contain incredible revelations about the universe. We haven't even figured out how to listen to that information yet, how to open up an eyeball that will let us see the universe in that way. Oh man, Daniel, you just gave me galactic FOMO, like a <laughs> co cosmic fear of missing out. What if there's something, you know, revelatory about the reality of the universe right now going through us, coming from space in the, in the light washing over us, but nobody's looking? What if? Almost certainly, right? Think about the history of science. You know, for millions and millions of years, light that contained information about the universe was hitting the earth and there was nobody even looking up. And then for thousands of years, we looked up, but we had no idea what that information contained. It's only the last few decades we've started to get a clue for how much information there is. So I'm sure we've only begun to crack that nut. Oh, man. What if we started looking out and we missed the first part? the first movie and we just catch the sequel. I mean, how confusing would that be? We are looking at the universe sort of almost 14 billion years after the story started. But fortunately, the movie started also very far away. And so it's just getting here now. We can go back and watch the original prequels. Oh, I see. This is not like a episode uh, 14 billion <laughs> in the movie of the universe. No, episode 14 billion is happening right here on Earth right now. But we hope that episode zero is still out there and that if we get a powerful enough telescope, we can see as it arrives on Earth because it took so long to get here. All right. So today we'll be talking about one such tool to look out into the universe. And it's a pretty exciting tool. It's still uh, under construction, uh, but it's a uh, plan to be launched pretty soon, right? In the next couple of years. Yeah, they actually finished building it a couple of years ago, but they're still sort of tweaking it and preparing it. It's a really complex device. 
and they need to really get it ready for launch. It's going to be a delicate thing when it finally goes up into space. And it's sort of the, the child or the successor to something that everybody's familiar with, one of the most famous experiments in astronomy. So today on the podcast, we'll be asking the question... What will the James Webb Space Telescope tell us about the universe? And you might be familiar with space telescopes in general because of Hubble. Hubble, of course, named after Edwin Hubble, who discovered that the universe was expanding, is provided these gorgeous pictures of the cosmos, has looked further and further out into the universe than anything before it. It's an incredible technological marvel. And now we're talking about basically Hubble 2.0. Hubble, the next generation. <laughs> yeah. Or if this was like horror movies, it'd be like Son of Hubble. <laughs> Did Hubble have a son? He might object to that, you know? <laughs> well, Hubble's son was probably named Hubble, actually, I just realized. So that would be terrible. Hubble, son of Hubble. <laughs> Hubble, episode two. Yeah, the real name for it, though, is the James Webb Space Telescope, named after mm. an administrator of NASA who had a big role in the Apollo program. And I hope that James Webb becomes as famous as Hubble, and I hope that the James Webb Space Telescope teaches us as much about the universe as the Hubble did. Yeah, so actually one of the reasons I brought up the PhD movie 2 in the opening of the episode is that, that those were two movies, uh, PhD movie 1 and 2, in which uh, that starred real uh, graduate students and real scientists and postdocs in the movie. And so it just so happened that one of the stars of the movies is now a scientist at the James Webb Space Telescope Project. Her name is Alexandra Lockwood, and she's awesome. She has a PhD in astronomy from Caltech. And she works on it uh, right now. And so I went out and I asked her what she thought is exciting and new about this new telescope. Yeah, so I called her up since we were, I knew we were talking about this space telescope. And I asked her to tell us a little bit about what this space telescope is and how it's different than the Hubble telescope. So here's what she had to say. The James Webb Space Telescope is NASA's next huge mission. It is going to tell us new things about all aspects of the universe, from planets to galaxies to the very beginning of what we know in the universe. It still works like Hubble does, like a giant telescope in space, but it's seven times bigger and it's going to see back even further and even deeper into all sorts of things. So it's, it's basically Hubble on steroids. It's not replacing Hubble because Hubble's still up there and working, but they're going to work side by side and tell us things you know that we, we can't even imagine. All right. It's an ambitious sequel, I think is what he's saying, you know? <laughs> it's been working out, you know, it's ripped. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't just try to um, do the same thing as the first one. They're really trying to upgrade it and let us see further into the universe and try to answer some of the new and bigger questions we have in astronomy, right? Yeah, and you don't get to build one of these things very often. And so when you do, you have to balance being really ambitious about developing new technologies that are going to give you incredible new information about the universe with actually making the thing work. And so you always want to push the boundaries a little bit, but then again, you also actually want to get the thing funded and up into space. And so yeah. here they've tried to go way beyond what they did with Hubble. They tried to do something much more impressive, much more powerful because Hubble's still working, right? You don't just want another Hubble. You want something better than Hubble. 
You you don't want a double Hubble. <laughs> I'd take ten Hubbles, but you know, if you're going to launch something, you want something that's a super Hubble. All right. So, uh, so what does uh, steroids and physics uh, look like? It sounds like uh, he said that it's on. It's like the old one, but on steroids. <laughs> so I'm wondering. First of all, is it legal? Is it allowed in the international community? And second of all, what is, what does a, a physics steroid do? I think it's a pretty good analogy because a physics steroid just makes you bigger. And being bigger, as we'll talk about in detail in a moment, is really important for telescopes because it means you can gather more light. And the more light you can gather, the more distant objects you can see. So being bigger really is better when it comes to telescopes. All right. Well, we were wondering, as usual, how many people out there had heard of the James Webb Space Telescope and whether they knew what we could possibly learn from it. So as usual, Daniel went out there into the streets of... UC Irvine and asked people out there if they knew what the James Webb Space Telescope is and what we could learn from it. Here's what people had to say. Well, I'm not sure exactly what it's supposed to be doing. My guess would be to get tighter constraints on the age of the universe. Again, I don't know what it's doing. <laughs> um, what are the things that we need to know? Um, you know, we could get tighter constraints on lifetime of dark matter, um, maybe on proton decay, things like that. I have not. No, I have not. No? I have not, no. No. I think so. Yeah, okay. Yes. Do you know what it's going to teach us, what we might discover using it? Is it the one that just recently went up to, like, replace a different telescope? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's looking for exoplanets, something like that. I'm not entirely sure, but cool. yeah. Um, I have not. No. The James Webb's is going to be the successor to the Hubble. It's going to be able to capture infrared light all the way back to the beginning of the universe where the light wasn't actually being recaptured in its immediate surroundings. All right. Well, I guess it's not up there yet, so maybe that's why people haven't heard of it very much. I was sort of disappointed. I mean, Hubble is so famous. I figured that people must have heard of this new device. It's been all the talk of astronomy for years and years and years, but almost nobody had heard of it. Not even the guy wearing a NASA t-shirt knew what I was talking about. Oh, uh, he was just wearing it for the ironic value, probably. I thought you were going to say because it's so cool and sexy. Is that what you're going to say? <laughs> Ironically, yes, that's what I meant. <laughs> yeah, so it seems like people out there aren't aware of what the James Webb Space Telescope will teach us about the universe and our origins and all sorts of crazy stuff. So it's good that we're going to dig into it today on the podcast. Educate yeah. the people. At least a dozen people will now know what it is <laughs> after this podcast. Me, you, and the 10 people I interviewed. Is that what you mean? <laughs> you're forgetting our editor also. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we know there are thousands of people out there listening. And so we are very happy to uh, tell people about this great and interesting new tool we have to extend signs. All right. So let's jump into it, Daniel. What is, I guess, first of all, let's maybe take a step back and uh, just talk about what a space telescope is. I mean, is it a telescope to look at space or is it actually like made out of space or does it take up a lot of space? What, what does space telescope me. Well, a space telescope is a telescope that is in space. Mm. Now, all these telescopes, of course, look at space. But if you're on the ground, you have to look at space through the atmosphere. And the atmosphere looks nice and clear, but, you know, it's not totally clear. And it's wiggly. When it gets hot, it shakes. And so photons have traveled for billions and billions of miles to get here on Earth for us to learn some secrets of the universe. You don't want to bend and twist and blur them just before they get to your telescope. So if you put a telescope up in space, you get to skip that last little fuzzy bit from the atmosphere. 
Oh, right. Because the atmosphere blocks some of the light coming from space and it also distorts it, right? Yeah, it blocks some of the light, specifically the light that's longer wavelength than we can see, what we call infrared. That light is especially absorbed by the atmosphere. And that light is really powerful because it's not absorbed by cosmic dust. So it travels much more easily through the whole universe until it gets here. And then it's basically blocked by the atmosphere. But on top of that, as you said, the atmosphere wiggles. And so you have to un somehow undo that wiggle if you want a really crystal clear picture of space. The other thing is that there aren't clouds in space. You could build an awesome telescope here on the ground and then apply for time and finally get like 10 hours on the telescope. And then it's just cloudy that day and you just can't see anything. Oh, man, I was just about to copyright the term space cloud but you're telling me that there is no such thing. Well, there's weather in space, as we talked about, but there aren't clouds. And so the really the best place to observe is up in space. Now, it comes with some downsides, of course. Right. So then, uh, so we have telescopes here on Earth and on mountains, but those are still under the atmosphere. And so the idea that um, somebody had at some point was to put a telescope in space and then take pictures of the universe that way. That's right. It's uninterrupted. You can keep the earth behind you. You don't have the atmosphere. You're open to different kinds of light. Of course, the disadvantage is that it's a lot harder to repair. And you remember when Hubble went up, there was like a fuzz on its mirror. This billions of dollars telescope finally launched and they turned it on and the pictures were fuzzy and they had to send <laughs> astronauts to repair it. And if oh, you ever man. waited to like get your cable repaired, this takes even longer. To get a an astronaut to repair. Can I get an astronaut to repair my cable? Would that also <laughs> work? I think they're pretty qualified, yeah. But it's pretty <laughs> expensive. I don't know what the service plan is like. All right, so you put it out into space and it can look out and it's, uh, it has a, a better view, but it's harder to maintain and uh, fix and, and to control, I imagine, right? It's pretty tricky. Yeah, and it's complicated. And also, you have to risk launching it. You put this thing, your baby, that you worked on for 10 or 20 years, that you've got billions of dollars of funding, and hundreds of people have helped you build, you put it on a rocket and send it up into space. And some fraction of these rockets, they just blow. So it could oh, be that boy. your little baby blows up on the pad. That's a space telescope. And the Hubble Space Telescope, which maybe, yeah, I think if you've been on the internet for a while, you've probably most likely have seen images from the Hubble Space Telescope which uh, was launched in the 90s, I think, or 80s? Yeah, I think it started operations in the early 2000s. Oh, all right. Cool. Uh, I have to check that, actually. I'm not sure. Um, just record Just record all versions. <laughs> Here, Here's 50 versions. For every, like 50 <laughs> it was started in 1991, October 37th. <laughs> uh, I mean, 27. October 37th. That sounds very credible, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Hubble's been around for a while. It's been providing us amazing pictures. But this telescope's going to be quite different from Hubble. I mean, it'll be in space still, but it's got some significant upgrades. All right. So this is the sequel to Hubble. Uh, and so it's, uh, what are, what's better, better and bigger about it? Well, first of all, it's bigger. So Hubble had about 4.5 square meters of observing area. And this one is going to have about 25 meters. Oh. That means that it can gather five times as much light. And that's really critical because it, the reason we can see something that's far away is because we focus on it and gather light for a while. You need to get enough photons from those things before you can see them. It's like having a bigger catcher's mitt to catch light. You just get, you're just, you're getting more stuff. 
Precisely. Think about that object that's billions and billions of light years away. Where it is, it's super bright. But then the photons, as they leave that thing, they spread out through the universe. So you get fewer and fewer photons per area, per volume, actually. And so mm. when you get to Earth, you're getting a very small number of photons. So the larger your catcher's mitt and the longer you can point it there, the deeper in space and the further back in time you can see. So size is huge, literally. But this thing is so big that it doesn't fit into a rocket. So they had to design this really complex thing. It's made out of 18 hexagonal mirrors that will unfold in space to make a big mirror. Wow. Sounds tricky. It does sound tricky. When that thing goes up, those guys are going to be nervous. <laughs> well, we have a high, high confidence in NASA. And, and so you're saying it's going to let us see further away. I guess, you know, because the, the stuff that's further away is giving off less light that's getting to us. And so if we have a bigger lens, a bigger mirror, a bigger catcher's myth, we can see those really far away objects. Precisely. That's one way that it'll let us see deeper into the universe. And there's a second, totally separate way that'll also help us see further into the universe. And that's that it can look at a different kind of light. Remember, the oh. things that are far away are also moving away from us more quickly. There's this relationship between distance from us and speed at which something is moving away. And the further mm -hmm. something is away from us, the faster it's moving away from us, which shifts the frequency of the light. And so the, we call this redshift. The further something is away from us, the faster it's moving away from us, the more the wavelength of the light is shifted towards the red. Right, like the whole signal of the light just becomes more red. That's right. And at some point, it passes out of the band that Hubble can see. Images from the very first things in the universe, which were really far away at the time, and the images are just now getting here, they're getting here, but they're so infrared shifted that Hubble cannot see them. Oh, wow. It's, it's like you're blind to those things. Yeah, so we're opening up a new kind of eye that can see light from those objects. Even if you pointed Hubble at one of these objects for a year and just focused on it and gathered all the light, Hubble still could not see it. It's just blind to it. So this is oh, going to wow. be bigger and it's going to be able to see in the infrared where these really, really distant objects are emitting. Wow, that does sound like a pretty good sequel. I, w I would pay to see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> and it has some it has some new features to let it do that because to see in the infrared you have to stay very very cold because infrared is basically the transmission of heat so to be sensitive to infrared light you have to have a really cold object and that introduces another layer of complexity not only are you out in space but you have to like cryo cool the whole thing oh i see because if you're if you're too warm then your sensors can't pick up these warm signals? Is that what it is? Like it gets lost in the noise? Precisely. You have to be really cold to be sensitive to infrared signals. So they have to keep this thing less than 50 degrees Kelvin. That's colder than it is in space, is it? No. It's pretty cold and it's colder than the sort of atmosphere of space is. You know, the cosmic microwave background radiation is like 2.3 degrees Kelvin. But mm. something that's sitting out in space that absorbs sunlight will get hotter than that. And so they oh, had to build a shield for this thing. This thing is a huge telescope, and it sits on top of a shield that's going to protect it from the sun. Interesting. It needs a parasol. Yeah, it's going to sit in its own shadow for its entire life. All right, cool. Well, I'll sign up to see that sequel. It sounds like uh, it's going to be bigger <laughs> and redder. <laughs> Maybe that should be the subtitle. Space Telescope 2, redder. Cooler. Further. Further, <laughs> redder, fainter. <laughs> but cooler. 
but cooler. <laughs> there you go. All right, let's get into when this thing is actually going to launch and what we can expect it to tell us. But first, let's take a quick break. Physicists are famously sticklers for detail. And when it comes to the fine print contracts and hidden fees from wireless providers, I've learned that there's always a catch somewhere. So when I heard that the Mint Mobile wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, where's the catch? But now I'm convinced there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online, so they cut out the cost of retail stores and they pass all those savings directly to you. So you can say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, draw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. All of Mint Mobile's plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month go to mintmobile.com slash universe that's mintmobile.com slash universe cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash universe additional taxes fees and restrictions apply see Mint Mobile for details apple card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day that's three percent on your favorite products at apple two percent on all other apple card with apple pay purchases and one percent on anything you buy with your titanium apple card or virtual card number Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. The Hyundai Santa Fe becomes available early 2024, so get on it now before all the good camping sites are full. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. All right, we're talking about the new and upcoming James Webb Space Telescope. And we, it's, we know it's going to be bigger and it's going to be cooler, technically and figuratively and literally. And it's going to be uh, pretty cool in that it's going to let us see further away objects and older objects. So Daniel, when can when are they planning on launching this and when when will it be ready to take a cool pics of the universe? Well, the official launch date is March 2021. But that's sort of the official launch date today. There's been a lot of official launch dates. The original launch date was 2007, but mm. obviously we missed that one. And so they they had some trouble getting it ready or well, you know, this thing is doing something that nobody's ever done before. And when you develop these instruments that nobody's ever developed before, then sometimes you run into snags and you have to change plans. And so like every big project, it's years behind schedule and billions of dollars over budget. But we think it's going to launch. Yeah, so there's been a few delays in launching the Space Telescope. And so I was curious, so I asked Alex again how she felt about the new launch plan for 2021. Yeah, so we 
we recognize that it has been delayed, but it it is full of things that have literally never been done before. Like not only is the science going to be great, but in order to do that, the things that people have made just to make this work, which include this giant 18 section segmented mirror, the biggest thing we've ever sent into space. And to do all that, the technology that we needed is incredibly, incredibly technical. Um, and so, yeah, it's taken longer than we need, than we thought it would, but that's because it is so profoundly innovative and the science is going to be amazing because we thought of all these new things to make it happen. I am very confident that it's going to launch in 2021. All right. So uh, that's pretty soon. Mar- March 2021. I mean, that's uh, probably sooner than the next Avengers sequel, I think. And hopefully it'll last longer. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully. Uh, but I hear it's going to cost about the same as this telescope, a few billion dollars. <laughs> or make a few billion dollars. <laughs> we should just make the profits, take the profits from Avengers and put it to space astronomy. What do you oh think? Oh my God, I've been saying that forever. The amount of money that we spend on wasted fidget spinners and movies compared to the science budget of this country, it's embarrassing. And um, probably equally mind-blowing. <laughs> well, this thing originally was going to cost about 500 million bucks. That's when mm-hmm. they started planning it in 1996. But by 2006, the budget had exploded to four and a half billion dollars. And now the total budget is just just shy of 10 billion dollars. That's quite the accounting call they probably had to have <laughs> to figure out these numbers. But um, but probably worth it, I'm sure. I mean, nine billion, that's like uh, the cost of one jet airplane, right? Yeah, it's totally worth it for secrets of the universe, for things that nobody's ever seen before. It's definitely going to be worth it. And, you know, the day that they launch, the day that this thing unfolds and turns on and sends down the first pictures, that's going to be an incredible moment in the history of, you know, humanity. I think it's going to be an exciting day for astronomers. They're going to be all gathered around the computer screen to see that first picture. So then let's talk about where they're going to put this. I mean, I know it's going to be out in space. Um, but space is pretty big. <laughs> so uh, how is this, is it going to be in the same place where Hubble is? Like it, is it going to sit next to Hubble or is it uh, doing something totally different? Well, Hubble is in orbit around the Earth. It's about 340 miles up. And that's convenient because if you do need to send Comcast or your cable guy up to fix it, then you can get there, right? We have space shuttles and or we had space shuttles, but now we have ways to get up into orbit to fix this stuff. That works for Hubble, but it doesn't work for the James Webb Space Telescope because it's a different kind of telescope and it needs to be Mm. blocked from the light of the sun and the moon and the earth constantly. Oh, I see. It needs to get away from things that are reflecting or are bright. Right. And so they put it out in this point. It's called a Lagrange point. There are several places around a, a large body where you can orbit in a sort of a stationary location. They're called Lagrange points. And this mm-hmm. one is called the second Lagrange point. And basically you take the sun, you draw a line from the sun to the earth, and then you keep uh-huh. going. And there's a point there where you can stay in stable orbit around the sun and the earth. And the cool thing there is that you keep the same relationship with the sun and the earth at all times. So you can keep sort of all these objects that are too bright behind your sun shield. Oh, I see. It's like you don't um, need to be spinning around the object to stay in orbit because you're sort of far enough away where the the gravity is weaker. Yeah, there's a stable little spot there where you can hang out. So you move around the sun sort of following the Earth. You have the same angle with respect to the sun as the Earth does at all times. And that way you can sort of put your back towards the earth and also the sun. 
And so uh, this thing needs to manage and it has this one sun shield, right? It has to block the earth, the sun and the moon at all times. And so it keeps all those things sort of behind it by being a little bit out further than the earth. Oh, clever. That's, so it's going to be like almost a million miles away from the earth. A million miles? A million miles, which means repair will be essentially impossible. Wow. Can you send robots to try to fix it or clean the lens? You probably could, but they would probably cost a billion dollars. We don't have like, you know, standard <laughs> we, robots roaming the solar system to fix stuff. We used it all to make the telescope. <laughs> we forgot to leave a little bit for the Roomba needed to <laughs> clean it up. Or maybe the next time, you know, we're sending our cable repair guys out to Mars, they can just sort of stop off at oh. uh, the James Webb telescope and fix it. Or that's that's probably the next sequel, you know, to make it a trilogy. The next space telescope is going to rescue the second space telescope. <laughs> Perhaps. Or maybe it'll just work fine. Maybe the sun shield will unfold and the telescope will unfold and it'll open up and just give us beautiful pictures from day one. Uh, Let's be optimistic. And so then as, it, as the Earth goes around the sun, this telescope is, is going to kind of maintain that the Earth and the sun behind it, right? Like it's going to rotate also kind of like a giant clock. Precisely. You draw that line from the sun to the earth and you extend it through the earth, it'll hit the James Webb Space Telescope. Always. And it should be fixed. Always. Yeah. It'll be wow, stuck in that spot. Cool. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. If you want to keep it cool and you want to see into the infrared and you want to see deep, deep into the universe, it really is the best place to put a space telescope. Oh, I see. It sits in the shadow that the earth makes from the sun. Well, the right? earth is also bright. Yeah. But it, it will see a constant eclipse. The Earth will be constantly in front of the sun. And so that wow. helps block it. But also it has its own sun shield, right? That it keeps the Earth, the moon, and the sun all behind it at all times. Oh, man. Is it going to take a selfie? That would be pretty cool. <laughs> like if it takes a picture backwards and it's like the, the Earth eclipsing the sun. That, that must, <laughs> I, hope, I hope they're putting in a, a backwards-facing camera there just for that selfie. I just want that selfie. You know, we don't build space telescopes for selfies. We build them to look out into the universe and see other stuff. I think there's already billions of selfies being taken on Earth at any moment. <laughs> I see, I see. We should just call them spacies. Let's write a proposal to NASA for the Jorge Cham Space Telescope Selfie. Everyone on Earth make a duck face at the same time, <laughs> at the count of three. That's worth $10 billion for sure. <laughs> there you go. I think everyone, I think every, I'm sure everyone on Earth would pay a dollar to get that selfie. Yeah, and the JCSST, Jorge Cham yeah. Selfie Space Telescope. There I'll pitch go. in a, a dollar. Let's see. Let's do a fundraiser. Let's see how far we get. <laughs> I'll start the Indiegogo right right now. <laughs> we can show people how easy it is to raise money for science when you're doing something ridiculous. All right. Well, let's get now into what it's going to tell us about the universe. What is this new lens into the cosmos going to reveal that we haven't seen before uh, in this new sequel? But first, let's take another quick break. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. 
You know what I mean. The Hyundai Santa Fe becomes available early 2024. So get on it now before all the good camping sites are full. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Are you ready to instill your littlest scholar with a love of learning? Introducing the Preschool Course from the Good and the Beautiful. Enrich curious minds with engaging hands-on material that cultivates an appreciation for literature, art, God, family, and nature. This award-winning system uses a balanced approach to introduce letters, numbers, fine motor skills, and more. Start your journey now at goodandbeautiful.com. The Good and the Beautiful, bringing home a love of learning. All right, Daniel, uh, this James Webb Space Telescope that's new is going to open up our eyes to new things in the universe, right? It, uh, it's going to let us see further, uh, redder, and cooler. So what are some of the things we can expect it to tell us? Well, like in any sequel, it's going to hit the best points of the previous one, right? It's going to double down on all the good stuff. Oh, I see. And so we're going to see further away, which means we might be able to see like the first stars that formed in the universe, which are invisible Mm. to Hubble because they're so redshifted. We might see the first galaxies formed and we might really get to see what it's like on another planet. What? All right, let's break it down. That that was a lot of cool stuff there. Um, So what do you mean the first stars? Like we're going to see them be born or we're going to see them, mm, you know, still sort of burning in the universe historical sense. Yeah, we're going to look back in time and see the first stars that formed in the universe. Remember, the universe began and then we had a lot of hydrogen gas and a little bit of helium. And these days, stars have more heavy stuff in them because there's been stars around to burn and diffuse and to create carbon and iron and, and that stuff. But back in the early days, we had the first stars forming just out of that raw gas from the Big Bang. And we think we know what those stars might have looked like. We think they're probably all much, much bigger than the sun. They burned out in just a few million years or tens of millions of years. But we don't really know. What did star formation look like when there had never been a star? And so that's something we'd like to see. And right now that light is hitting us, but it's too red shifted and too faint for us to see it. So we just need to turn this eyeball on so we can see what those stars looked like. Oh, I see. So, I mean, these stars are by now long gone. Like right now in this instant, they're, they're, they were gone a long time ago. But the ones that were really, really far away, we might still be able to see them because it took so long for the light to get here. That's right. We have this amazing feature that we can look backwards in time by looking further away because light takes so long to get here. So something really interesting that happened a long, long time ago, 14 billion light years or so, is just now getting here on Earth. So we're right, looking out of the furthest shell. Right. But it has, to, it has to be like the stars that form at the very edge of the universe. 
The stars have formed really far from here. We don't know if there is an edge to the universe or what's going on over there, but you're right. We can't see things that happened a long time ago close by. That light has now left and is, is being observed by aliens somewhere on another planet. But mm. the light that was created from these first stars 14 billion years ago is still flying through the universe if it, if it came from really, really far away and it's just now getting to the Earth. Wow. And these first stars are different than the ones we see now? How are they interesting and different? Well, the stars that we see now have all sorts of mix of gases in them because they're formed from the leftovers of other stars that have died. So remember, the universe is many cycles of star life and death in. The first stars formed, they clumped together this gas and burned and created heavier elements like helium and beryllium and lithium and oxygen. And then, then they blew up. And then more stars formed from the remnants, from the shards of those stars. And they could burn even hotter because they're more massive and they have heavier stuff in them. And eventually you get heavier and heavier and stuff. And that's how you make, you know, iron and all the stuff that makes us up. But we're many cycles in. So we want to see the first cycle. We want to see how this whole series got started. Right. You want to see the OG stars. Yeah. And, you know, star formation seems sort of basic. It's like, well, gas clumps together and you get stars. But it's actually really complicated and we still don't understand it. For example, we look out at galaxies all around us and we see that some of them are still making new stars. Other ones ha are not. Some galaxies seem like dead and we don't understand the difference. We don't understand why some galaxies keep making stars and other ones don't. So we'd like to go back to the very beginning and see the original stars and see what started it all. Pretty cool. And so we, you said we'll also get to see some of the first galaxies. What do you mean? Have, the, have there been second galaxies since? Yeah, in exactly the same way that we don't really understand how stars formed in the first moments, we also don't really understand what the first galaxies looked like. Now, our galaxies, the ones that, that you're familiar with, like the Milky Way, has a bar in the middle and then these lines swirling around it. It's a spiral mm -hmm. galaxy. Right. But it looks like a swirl. looks like a swirl. But the older galaxies that we look at, if we look really far back in time, not as far back as James Webb will tell us, the galaxies don't look like that. They're sort of just like little clumps or more like blobs. And they don't have these swirl shapes. And we don't really understand how did you get from the blobs to the swirls? Were all the galaxies back then blobs? And then the galaxies we have now are like combinations of galaxies where they've merged together through collisions and formed these super galaxies, which then become swirls. Or is there a different process? Interesting. Because uh, so before they, so you're saying before galaxies look different than they are now, and we kind of don't know how to make that connection. Yeah, we don't know how they started. And most interestingly, we don't know the role that black holes played. Like we think that there's a black hole at the center of every galaxy, like there is one at the center of the Milky Way, but we don't know what the cause and effect is. Like does every galaxy eventually form a black hole because you get so much stuff in the middle? Or do galaxies form around black holes? Like do black holes cause galaxies or the other way around? So we'd like to go back to the original galaxies and see, are these the first black holes formed in the universe? It's a, the old, you know, chicken and the black hole problem. Which one came first? <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a chicken lay a black hole, but I'd like to. <laughs> yeah, maybe with this new telescope. <laughs> who knows, right? The possibilities are endless. Add that to the list of science missions for the James Webb Telescope. That's right. That's what I want to see in a sequel. <laughs> That's definitely a, chicken a prequel. Chicken laying a black That's, hole. That's prequel territory. But, you oh, know, I think I there's, there's something here that uh, I want people to understand, which is that seeing the first thing, seeing the origins of stuff, really gives you a sense for like why something is. 
You know, it could have been that the universe didn't have galaxies. That it's just a bunch of stars distributed through space. Why do we have Mm. galaxies at all? What made that happen? And why are galaxies the size they are, not 10 bajillion times bigger or much, much smaller? And I think the clues to those big questions about the, like the nature of space that's out there lies in the origins of galaxy formation, which we will get to watch. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like this telescope is not just going to let us travel further out into the universe or see with more clarity, but it's actually like kind of like a time machine, you know, like you can go back in time further and see closer to the origin and birth of the universe. Precisely. And when you want to understand how, why things are the way they are, you got to go back to the beginning. And this is going to take us back there. You're exactly right. It's like a time machine. It's going to let us see light from the very first moments that there was even light in the universe. Because, you know, the universe had these dark ages after all the stuff was created. It was just sort of dark for a while before the first stars formed. So we're going to get to see the first light that was generated from stars. Oh, interesting. And then somebody said, let there be light. Is that what you're saying, Daniel? (laughs) That sounds like something from a writer's room, man. (laughs) All right. And then you said one last thing that was pretty mind-blowing to me is that this new telescope might let us actually kind of find out if there's life out there in the universe. Yeah, we have these amazing telescopes now that can help us find other planets like Kepler and Tess. These are designed to see that there are other planets there around other stars. And in the last mm-hmm. 5, 10, 20 years, that field has exploded. We found now thousands of stars that have planets around them. The problem with those telescopes is they're really good at seeing that the planet is there, but they're not good at studying the planet. They're like more about breadth. You know, they can find the stuff, but once they find it, they can't like zoom in on it very well. Whereas James Webb is great at zooming in on stuff. Cool. Cause it has kind of a, it's a more powerful lens, right? Like it's bigger. And so you can better focus. And so you might actually, you know, better peer into these distant planets, right? And maybe make out things that would tell you if there is life out there. Exactly. Just like if you're searching a beach for, you know, somebody's lost wedding ring or something, you can use a metal detector to tell if something is there. But when you hear a signal, you want to dig down and look, use a magnifying glass or a microscope and see what you found. You want to zoom in in gory detail. So James Webb, what it can do, it's not great at finding that there are planets there, right? You wouldn't want to search a beach with a magnifying glass. That's what essentially would be like looking for exoplanets with James Webb. But once you found one, Then you point your super Hubble at it, you point James Webb at it, and it can study the atmosphere of these planets. If they're close enough, it might even give us pictures of the planets themselves. Wow. It'd be like the ultimate paparazzi tool. (laughs) Yeah, we can spy on what's going on in those planets. (laughs) Uh, What if you turn it around and and point it at Earth, Daniel? What could we see? (laughs) We could see vain cartoonists making a duck face. There you go. That's, that's, that's worth $10 billion right there. <laughs> and they have this really cool instrument on it. The problem, of course, when you point a telescope at a planet that's really far away is that it's also next to a star. And that star sort of drowns it out. And so to keep your instrument from getting like swamped by the star, they have this thing called a coronagraph, which they, they use to basically block the light from the star. They move it so that it blocks the light from the star. And you can only see around the star, the corona of the star. People do this to study the corona of the sun. You block out the sun. It has a lit, like a little dot in the middle? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's a little dot in the middle to block out the light from the star so you could only see the stuff near it. Avoid your instrument from getting like swamped and saturated from all the light from that star. 
so we could that'll help us visualize these exoplanets. So it doesn't look like a J.J. Abrams version of Star Wars <laughs> sequel uh, with all the lens flares. Exactly. Lens flares, not documentary. Lens flares, <laughs> not real physics. All right. And so to close out the episode, we thought we'd have Alex tell us a little bit about what we can expect from the James Webb Telescope. So this telescope is the biggest telescope that we've ever built. This is really meant to answer some of the big questions like, you know, why, where do we come from and are we alone? And the possibilities for what's out there are tremendous. And so we're going to see all the way back, you know, into our deepest history, but then all the way out to, to, you know, what could be out there now. And, you know, I, we're probably not going to see another mission of this, of this magnitude in my lifetime. Well, you can really hear the excitement in the voice of these astronomers. You know, we are building them where they're building a huge new toy and we're paying for it, but they get to see the light. And so I'm excited for them and I'm excited for what humanity is going to learn. I'm excited for what those first stars and first galaxies are going to look like. And I'm excited to see pictures of other planets. Yeah, that's definitely, I think, a sequel that will get me to pay for another movie ticket, ticket I think. <laughs> Joking aside, I would definitely pay more taxes if it meant we got to build more awesome space telescopes. Uh, you know, Daniel, you can't pay more taxes if you wanted to. I know, but I can't fund a space telescope with my income. Everybody's got to pay more taxes to make that happen. All right. Well, hopefully uh, this will get more people excited about it. And so when the trailer drops, people will um, share it and be even more excited. And so stay tuned. It's coming out in a couple of years and hopefully it will tell us all about where we came from. I'm excited. I hope you're excited. And we'll look forward to unpacking the discoveries of the James Webb Space Telescope sometime in late 2021. Well, thanks for listening. See you next time. If you still have a question after listening to all these explanations, please drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Daniel and Jorge, that's one word, or email us at feedback at danielandjorge.com. Thanks for listening, and remember that Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Oh, okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say... Nothing, because you're speechless. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Turns out a delightfully clean home can make for a delightful start to the day. At Mrs. Myers, everything they make is inspired by the garden. With plant-derived and other thoughtfully chosen ingredients, their cleaning products smell like a dream and work like the Dickens, leaving your home sparkly clean and your to-do list tackled in no time. Goodness, there's no better feeling than that. Mrs. Myers, rooted in goodness. Visit mrsmyers.com today.